welcome, Peter. Thank We're very glad to have you with us today. Thank you. This is, I've uh, got Peter Massini here from Future Nature Consulting. He's agreed to kindly just talk us a bit through the whole biodiversity issues that we're seeing that are coming up in developments now. Something that's actually bringing out a lot of interest, partly because of the urban greening factor um, in London and the upcoming biodiversity net gain legislation that will come in the Environment Bill. So tell me, there seems to be a bit of a misunderstanding about this whole biodiversity. Describe biodiversity, explain it. What does it mean simply to you? Well, in, technically biodiversity is, is the variety of all living things. So it covers everything from plants, animals, right down to the fungi and bacteria. So it's, it's the things we actually need to uh, conserve and protect um, for our own benefit. Um, but actually, I think it's, it's a sort of wider concept of that. It's more about broader ecology, about what are the ways in which we can um, manage and design our landscapes uh, for the benefit of wildlife, but also for the benefit of us as well, because we need to find ways to address some of the environmental challenges we know are facing us down the line. That's very helpful. So really, it's the whole range of eco ecology. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That We've got to start thinking in terms of ecology uh, rather than just um, species and habitats per se. It's, you know, because it's, it's about us as well as it's about protecting wildlife. It's interesting, I think it's been said that while we look after nature, nature looks after us. Sure, absolutely. So, but in, in urban areas, we all tend to think there's very little biodiversity. There's some there, but how can we actually increase that simply without giving over huge areas of land? So in most urban areas, you know, there, there are areas which are protected, whether they're parks or nature reserves. And of course, there's, there's wildlife biodiversity that sort of infiltrates itself through the urban environment. But it's probably quite right to say that on most urban development sites in particular, um, uh, there's very rather limited biodiversity. But that's where new development can actually be designed in to create those uh, connections between existing parks and green spaces, creating features like green roofs, um, creating opportunities for trees to uh, uh, achieve maturity, to create those sort of corridors and, and opportunities for wildlife to weave its way through the urban environment um, and improve the connections between existing parks and green spaces, but also bringing that wildlife closer where people live. Because again, in urban areas, it's about the experience, the day-to-day -day experience of wildlife, rather than having to uh, go and visit a nature reserve at the weekend, for example. Yeah, and do you think there's additional legislation needed to do that, or do you think there's enough already there? I think we've probably got enough legislation. It's about how that legislation is interpreted and understood in ways that deliver sensible outcomes that, again, benefit people and wildlife. Um, we've got to do sort of far more holistic thinking around how we design environments that we're designing for ourselves, because that's what we do, uh, but can accommodate ecology, wildlife. Again, not just for the sake of wildlife, but also for our own benefit. And I think everyone's beginning to realise now, particularly post-pandemic, post post-Covid, that it's not just about living in a pleasant green space. Actually, those, that greening of the urban environment has real tangible benefits, both in terms of health, in terms of air quality, and in terms of... Um, our custodianship of, of the natural world. I think that's very, very interesting. And, and the problem is, that if we put too much legislation in there, we end up designing to legislation rather than designing to the maximum benefits we can get from yeah. nature. But there is a danger that uh, too much legislation or too prescriptive legislation, um, that becomes the objective to meet the legislative requirements rather than actually thinking through what is the best outcome 
for this development in ways that actually enhance the environment for people and for wildlife. Yes, that's interesting. Now, you were very much involved in your previous role as um, the lead green infrastructure policy officer at the GLA. Um, now, I think you said that it's really the, U the UGF, the Urban Green Factor, really is um, intended to be something that's a, a guidance um, and, and something that can be discussed. How effective how, do you think it is? And, and explain how that differs from biodiversity net gain. So, so the Open Greening Factor is a, is a planning policy, and it's a planning policy that encourages um, developers and working with local authorities to integrate green elements into their buildings. So things like green roofs, green walls, uh, street trees, sods, all those kind of things. And, and it's, it sets a, a bar. It sets a bar in terms of the quantum of, of urban greens required. Um, but it's not a mandatory requirement. It's something that needs to be negotiated and discussed to make sure you get the best possible outcome. Um, for example, if you're in a part of London where it's suffering from surface water flooding, you want to design your green infrastructure primarily to deal with surface water flooding. Um, biodiversity net gain is about how you address potential impacts on biodiversity, where you're losing biodiversity to try and replace it. On many urban sites, if you've got a limited biodiversity there in the first place, um, a policy that aimed specifically to address loss isn't necessarily going to give you any great benefits because you're not losing very much. Um, so the urban greening factor can actually work hand in hand with the biodiversity net gain uh, requirements. In an urban context, if you meet the urban greening factor, which only applies in London at the moment, but hopefully could be applied in other cities, if you meet the urban greening factor, by and large, you're also going to meet biodiversity net gain. So biodiversity net gain is fantastic policy uh, if you're developing greenfield sites to make sure that you retain and enhance the best bits of biodiversity in those locations. But again, in most urban generation projects, if there's very limited biodiversity there in the first place, the urban greening factor actually is more likely to generate uh, um, adequate green infrastructure, good quality green infrastructure, which also has benefits of biodiversity. And that's, that's the sort of of thought behind the policy. And that's so really Urban Green Factory is a lot broader in its outlook and, and what it's hoping to achieve. I think it's very helpful. And, and, it, and it's designed to encourage collaboration, co-design to get architects, landscape architects, civil engineers working together to achieve the best possible outcome. Um, and outcomes which are addressing the key challenges that we have to face. Um, the biggest one being climate change. Yeah. You know, if we don't address climate change, if we don't use nature-based solutions to address climate change in cities, um, protecting biodiversity is going to be a, um, a sort of a minor afterthought. You know, because we can do that in nature reserves. We can do that in improving the way we manage our parks. But actually, to get green infrastructure into the urban environment, it's got to relate to the challenges which affect most people, and that's increasingly climate change. So otherwise, we could be creating beautiful environments for nature and biodiversity, but actually creating environments where we can't live ourselves. Or, or, or people who don't want to live, or it, it still floods. You know, yes. it, you know, if, if we end up with green infrastructure that's designed to meet a biodiversity requirement and your neighbourhood still floods, um, I can be pretty sure which, the, which is the issue that most people are going to be concerned about. And is there any mechanism within the urban greening factor to actually make sure that it's maintained so it's still effective five, ten years down, down the line? So as a planning policy, it doesn't have a 
specific mechanism to ensure maintenance. Uh, and this is always the big problem, how you actually ensure that these interventions are maintained in the long term. Um, but again, I think that's where, uh, particularly in urban areas, that collaboration between local authorities, developers and local communities to make sure you're actually creating public realm that works for everyone. Uh, and we need to get far more sophisticated in terms of how we um, develop mechanisms and uh, uh, processes to, to ensure that long-term maintenance. Because it can't just simply be a developer develops a site and then hand it to the local authority and it's their responsibility for the long term. Um, we do need those much more sophisticated um, public-private partnerships which ensure that collaboratively and collectively we're maintaining that public realm. Um, we do it for other bits of infrastructure. Mm -hmm. you know, it's not something that's um, uh, completely beyond our wit, but we just never think about green infrastructure as an infrastructure that needs to be maintained long term, just the way we man maintain our roads, our uh, digital networks, our power networks. They tend to be you know, an element of public and private partnerships because they're fundamental infrastructure yes. that we know we have to maintain. That's very helpful. We've always said here at Green Blue Urban that we need some sort of parity between green and grey and blue so that we understand that these are part of our essential lifestyle. I think that's very interesting. And we've heard some, some, some worrying um, stories that um, the, the net biodiversity gain is going to be very hard for local authorities to actually enforce unless it's written into local plans and, and specifically mentioned. Have you got any feelings on that? How, how Whether it's some, we're going to have to recommend local authorities to upgrade their local plan to make sure that it is actually mentioned? What would you say about that? Um, so, I mean, when Biodiversity Net Game becomes uh, a legal requirement, which it will do is on the back of the, the Environment Act, um, it's it won't be something which can't be, you know, or, or can be ignored because it's a legal requirement. But clearly it does need the ability of local authorities to take that requirement and develop policy which is fit for purpose in the local areas. Um, it's very similar to things like protected species legislation. The legislation's there that uh, requires certain steps to be taken. But that needs to be done in, a, in an intelligent and informed way. And that's best done through good local policy. Lots of local authorities uh, struggling with developing or updating the local plans. Um, ideally, uh, the Environment Act also requires local authorities to produce local nature recovery strategies, which should set the framework for biodiversity net gain. Um, but those aren't a, a requirement in themselves. It would be fantastic if government actually provided the funds and resources to ensure that local nature recovery strategies were uh, prepared and published in tandem with updating local plans. And then you would have a really good framework for uh, discussing with developers and others how we actually deliver the best outcomes of biodiversity. They're also being done in a way that um, considers those, those interventions in terms of wider green infrastructure, those wider benefits around climate, around active travel, public health. But it does need that, that framework in place and uh, yeah I think some local authorities are struggling to get that framework in place because they haven't got the support resources to, to enable them to do it. Is that, is that joined up thinking? Yeah. As ever we need more joined up thinking it's um, and it, it's, it's, it's a clear and easy thing to say that we, we, we need more joined up thinking uh, but it does require that investment up front 
to enable you to put together very, very good frameworks. And say some local authorities, you know, just simply don't have the resource at the moment to spend the time and money to step back from what they're doing on a day-to-day -day basis to actually develop a really good framework. And government are playing a, a, a good game in terms of the, the broad national policy framework. That needs to be backed up with some, some resources to enable local authorities to really deliver on those government commitments. And do you think there are persons out there who are trained in enough of them to actually do that? Or yes, I mean, certainly there are you know, uh, a large number of ecologists, landscape architects, civil engineers, who now understand how these things can be linked and joined together. Um, it's about enabling those people to work within a common framework. And those common frameworks are the things that local authorities are being encouraged to do, but they need support to enable them to, to deliver them. Thank you. We've also been asked about um, biodiversity net gain audits and monitoring. Whose responsibility is that? Is that the local authority? Is it the developer? Is it the landowner? Is it? That's a good question. I don't, I don't think we've currently understand how those biodiversity net gain audits will be done. Um, there's lots of things that need to be sorted out between now and when biodiversity net gain becomes a mandatory requirement. And, and as, as you're aware, once the Environment Act becomes law, potentially at the end of this year, there's a two-year transition period before biodiversity net gain actually becomes a mandatory requirement. Uh, and I know that DEFRA and Natural England are beginning to think through some of the uh, governance issues around, around biodiversity net gain. Um, but it will need, you know, it will need either Natural England or, or some other uh, uh, competent authority to actually check whether biodiversity net gain is, is being delivered as required by, by the Environment Act. And that's both delivery on site, but also particularly delivery of any off-site mitigation that's, that's required as a result of biodiversity net gain. And who's going to pay for that? Um, and again, another good question. Um, it, it, it's where we need this sort of joined up approach from government and local government to actually resource these things. It's not, you know, it's not, it's something we can do. Uh, it's not um, uh, beyond our capability to come up with these government, governance mechanisms. But I think we spent a lot of time thinking through the, the sort of technical aspects of biodiversity net gain. Uh, governments, local governments, organisations who are interested in biodiversity net gain need to now start thinking about well, what are the governance arrangements we need to put in place to make these things happen. It's very similar to the issue we had around SUDS, you know, the sort of technical ability to design SUDS. You know, we, we got that, we figured that out, and then we came up with this issue around governance and adoption, and those are the things that aren't thought through. Uh, and you know, they're the sort of slightly trickier things because it requires um, uh, linking up within planning policy, political decisions, as well as the technical aspects. But unless you get governance and uh, uh, monitoring and, and research to improve policy over time, um, we don't get the best we can possibly do. And, and it's always tricky, isn't it, trying to legis legislate for what's happening on private land? True, yeah. I mean, it's, uh, I mean a lot of developers uh, uh, are quite... Um, geared up to the notion of implementing things like biodiversity net gain and SUDS, uh, particularly because of the, of the increasingly, uh, increasing awareness of, of issues around climate. You know, just over the last few months uh, across the UK, you know, we, we've increasingly seen some of the impacts of stormwater, um, of surface water flooding, and, and most developers now get it that you know, they need to be part of the solution because they will be liable long-term down the line. You know, it's not something about, let's build something, then walk away. Uh, it sounds trite, but we're all in it together now. And we've also been asked about whether 
biodiversity credits could be used to actually help funding streams within local councils. What do you think about that? Uh, it's possible. So some local authorities are, are certainly beginning to think about biodiversity offsetting as ways in which to improve and enhance the management of, of spaces they own. And in some circumstances, that, that would be a, a really good solution because sometimes it's actually better to do biodiversity offsetting off-site, uh, where you can do bigger landscape scale projects. Um, and certainly some of the private providers of, of biodiversity offsetting will be looking at that, will be looking at acquiring land where they can actually um, uh, amalgamate you know, a number of different biodiversity offset requirements into a bigger landscape scale project. So again, these are the issues that need to be sorted out over the next few years is whether in certain locations it's best to do stuff off-site on a bigger landscape scale approach or whether developers can deliver their biodiversity net gain on-site not just to meet their biodiversity requirements but also to improve you know, make good places for people to live. And so when perhaps it's done off-site, maybe a larger scheme within the public realm, how does that get funded long-term for maintenance? Is that something that will they pay a commuted sum towards a local authority? Or is that something that, that they, the local authority would actually take on themselves? So I think it's probably a mix of the two. So um, certainly some of the private providers will, will be setting a, a, a market value, not just creating the biodiversity of offset, but also the long-term management of it. Um, I guess local authorities will take, take the same sort of decision. Um, but again, I think these are the things that haven't quite been thought through. They're part of that governance issue that I mentioned. You know, how we actually make these things work. We're good at writing policy, the broad policy framework. We're good at writing the technical aspects of design and delivery. We're not so good at actually putting in place those long-term governance mechanisms, which not only um, uh, determine how that, how that offsetting or even sort of on-site is managed in the long term, but also generates the resources for the maintenance. Mm. Well, I think that's been very, very helpful. Thank you very much indeed, Peter. I feel we're very encouraged that biodiversity has come so far up the agenda and the whole understanding of ecosystem services which are needed within our urban environments so that we're passing on some of the sustainable and resilient towns and cities really for future generations and something that's financially sustainable as well so that we're not actually creating huge liabilities in the future which our children and grandchildren will end up having to pay for. So thank you for being with us today, thank Peter. You. Very much appreciate what you said. Thanks a lot. Cheers, Howard. Bye-bye.